You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 19th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 19th of October. This is Monocle's House View. Today, Britain teeters on the brink of Brexit. This is a a great deal for our country, for the UK. I also believe it's a, a very good deal for our friends in the EU. And what it means is that we in the UK can come out of the uh, EU uh, as one united kingdom. The House of Commons gathers for a special sitting as Boris Johnson tries to win support for his deal. And Theresa May is struck by a feeling of déjà vu. Also ahead, Donald Trump's acting chief of staff undercuts the president's key defence against impeachment. Did he also mention to me in the past the, the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. But that's it. And that's why we held up the money. I'll be joined by the journalists Mary Dijewski and Simon Brook to discuss the week's news and the Saturday newspapers. That's all ahead on Monocle's House View, starting now. Good morning from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin and welcome to the programme. Well, let's start here today in London because although this has been said far too many times, today is the day that will either make or break Brexit we think. Parliament is sitting for a special session. Mary, what happens if Boris Johnson's deal doesn't pass? <laughs> ah. <laughs> There'll be a collective sigh across the, across the nation as people say, no, we've got to carry on with all this. Um, what will actually happen is that the, as it were, the safety valve um, kicks in, which was the the last bill um, which said Parliament is adamantly opposed to Brexit with no deal. And so Boris Johnson, if he fails to get an agreement through the British Parliament before the 31st of October, is supposed to write a letter to Brussels requesting a further delay, um, further extension of EU membership until such time as the British, British government and parliament can all agree um, on some deal. Um, but it puts it all back. And the, the, um, the other question um, is whether Boris Johnson, who's got so much invested in this deal that he's seemed personally um, to have helped negotiate and endorse, whether he will actually be prepared to write such a letter. Um, some of the people around him are saying, well, of course, he would never um, he would never break the law. Um, but other people are saying, well, actually, he might weasel out of it. He might get some other minister to write this letter or it might not get written at all. And he might challenge the whole issue through the courts. Now, of course, Oliver Letwin uh, is the uh, the fly in the, the ointment or the, or the wild card, if you like. Tell us about this, Simon. Yes, so he has uh, introduced an amendment and this would could slow the whole process down considerably, couldn't it? Um, and give people more of an opportunity to, to look at the issues. And I think what's interesting today is, the last couple of days, is comments by, for instance, Tony Blair, who um, has said, look, we know we want to get this done. Uh, we're fed up with it. Um, certainly the polls and Vox Pops done by the media make it absolutely clear that people are sick to death of the Brexit debate. They just want to, to get it out of the way as they see it. 
But uh, the problem is, as Tony Blair points out, that this is a massive, this is a momentous decision. And he's saying, let's not... Um, uh, rush through, you know, let's have a really good look at this. And, um, you know, this is obviously something that's very of great concern to Oliver Letwin as well, that opportunity for Parliament to really have a, a good uh, proper analysis of the situation. I think also we need to look at the other side of the the channel though, don't we? I mean, there's talk of of prolong prolongation, of an extension, stuff like that. Certainly what Jean-Claude Juncker has said is, no, there shouldn't be any prolongation. So we might be in a situation where the UK Parliament votes for this extension, votes for, as you say, Mary, the, the Prime Minister to write, this, to write this letter, but the EU says, no, absolutely not. And then in fact, what we could be, in a, we could find ourselves in a situation where we end up with a no-deal Brexit, which of course is the thing that the, the people who do want an extension, absolutely, or most of the people who want an extension, absolutely do not want to see. Mm. I was just speaking to uh, Matthew Dancona, and off air, off air he, he made the comment mm. that it's like a doctor saying, oh, your leg needs to be amputated, and then says, oh, well, maybe it doesn't, but by then everyone's going, let's just get the leg off, cut the <laughs> leg off. And in fact, the leg was perfectly healthy. <laughs> So this whole phrase of let's just get it done, as you say, it needs much more thought, doesn't it, Simon? Mm. So, Mary, today, uh, I mean, an historic moment. Uh, well, it is a historic moment because, um, aside from anything else, the British Parliament doesn't meet on Saturdays. Um, and it hasn't met since 1982, which was a complete, a full-dress emergency debate almost immediately after Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands. Um, and that is now regarded, with hindsight, um, as a huge historic meeting of Parliament with sort of top-grade oratory from senior politicians um, and I remember listening at least to the morning session, um, and it was, you know, it was it, it was a complete state occasion. Um, I'm not sure that this is going, really going quite to live up to that um, that standard either in terms of the rhetoric, um, even though the issue is obviously at least as significant, um, and probably for the longer term um, in determining the future of the UK. Um, but now we have this complication of the um, of the Letwin bill that we were just talking about, um, and some people are saying, well, if the if the Letwin amendment, um, which requires in a way more delay, if that gets through, then it's entirely possible that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, will decide, well, you know, enough of that, um, and send them all off home for the day and say, well, um, okay, you didn't like it, we'll all have to come back and. Um, and reconvene, so it could be a very, a very big damp squib that should be could be over in a few hours. Mm. Simon, how likely is it that Boris Johnson will just ignore the law? I think it's a real problem for him. Um, probably being a Tory, because obviously we'd, we'd expect the you know the Tory party being the the party of law and order. So um, I think it'd be a really difficult situation. I think what's what's interesting here is. Having said that the Tory party is the party of law and order, we're seeing the, this sort of schism on the right. We've seen it already take place in the US where you've got the populists who would very much, you know, very much a strong man, so in inverted commas, who doesn't deal with the, the law and the, 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 the niceties of the Constitution, wants to get things done, who wants to, to deliver the will of the people and that sort of stuff. And then on the other hand uh, of the, the, the right, uh, you've got the more traditional, you would say, very much respect, respectful of 
of the law, very much, um, you know, free trade, rights of the individual, all this kind of stuff. And I think we've seen it, as I say, in the US with the, the Republicans split over the Trumpists and the more traditional Republicans. And I think we've got the same uh, situation here as well, that uh, there's a danger that... Um, that, that uh, Boris Johnson paints himself as a kind of populist. And to some extent, he has to do that because, of course, electorally, he needs to scoop up those votes from the Brexit party, doesn't he? You know, he needs to get them on board so that he doesn't split the right wing leave vote um, and end up sort of handing victory to Labour. Um, all the papers, of course, have analysis of the figures and what's going to happen today. Uh, probably unfair to ask you both of this. <laughs> what's your prediction, Mary? Well, I think if the um, if the Letwin Amendment is voted down, then I think Boris is going to win um, by maybe by a few more votes um, than is actually being forecast. I mean, the current forecasts are single figures, like one, two or three votes. Simon? I'd agree with Mary, actually. I think he probably will just get it through. And I think there'll be a lot of people who say, I'm not keen on doing this, but it's the get it done thing. And also, because if you look at uh, the, the raw politics of it, um, you know, even on the Labour side, obviously, they're whipped to vote against it. But don't forget that 35 out of the 45 seats that Labour needs to win to, to, to win the election uh, voted leave. And 16 out of the 20 of their most vulnerable seats also um, voted to leave. So if Labour, I completely understand why, you know, they're, they're, they're whipping their MPs against this. But if they do actually, be, if they are actually seen, I think, to be soft on Brexit, if they are actually seen to be uh, on the in the Remain camp, it's not going to play well in those, uh, those incredibly important constituencies. I think there's something else interesting, which is that um, with Boris Johnson becoming leader of the Tory party and prime minister, there has been a sort of new sense of discipline um, and now that he's got his deal um, through Brussels, um, whereas you get the sense that Jeremy Corbyn's star is a bit in decline um, and any sense of discipline that there was under his leadership is actually um, really quite in big trouble. So I think we could see more, quote, rebels um, on the Labour side than maybe some people are predicting. Now, the vote on the main motion is due by 2.30, so possibly we'll have oh, some resolution <laughs> later on today. Uh, let's move across the Atlantic now. Uh, Donald Trump's acting chief of staff managed the remarkable feat of making the president's fight against impeachment even more difficult this week. Uh, Mick Mulvaney told journalists during a press briefing that military funds were withheld in part until Ukraine invest investigated an unsubstantiated theory that was involved in a hack against the Democratic Party. Now, Mulvaney later said his comments had been misconstrued, although the press briefing was televised. I mean, this is once again a member of Donald Trump's administration saying black is white. Uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, Simon, what was, your, what was your take on, on the impeachment shenanigans this week? I, it, I mean, it reminded me also of the great, the late and great Antony Scaramucci, a previous uh, spoke, not, not chief of staff, but a previous spokesman for the president. And I think this is just this is just shows how different Donald Trump's White House is to a conventional White House, isn't it? I mean, there would have been a time when when this kind of situation would have been absolutely disastrous. It would have been almost fatal for the president. But given the the ongoing uh, reality TV show that is the, the White House under Trump, I don't think it makes an awful lot of difference in some ways, does it? I mean, as you say, it, it, I love it when people say, oh, my comments were misconstrued or taken out of context. You think... 
but we saw you say it. We saw your lips. You know, we heard you say it. We saw your lips move. Sort of, sort of it being some YouTube meme. I don't know. I don't see how this, uh, you know, how this can be taken out of context. But it, it just shows, um, really. I think. I mean, Trump will just sail through this. This latest thing, whether on the bigger scale of the whole Ukraine issue, I think this could be very serious for him. Yeah. Well, Mary, of course, that part of the world is your your USP, if you like. Uh, how's this being viewed from Ukraine and indeed from Russia? Well, I think that um, Russia on this particular issue is sort of standing back with the same um, degree of um, quizzical um, criticism as uh, uh, as we are here. Um, in Ukraine, I think it's slightly different. Um, I think um, at a popular level, there's really probably not that in, that much interest. It's so much in the small print. But I think at a top level, it's potentially incredibly damaging. And the trouble here is that it's also totally unjust um, because if you sort of think about it, this is something that has landed on the on the head of the new president, um, Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, it's through no doing of his own, whatever. This is something that has originated in Washington insofar as it's uh, any sort of Ukrainian scandal. It has to do with his predecessor um, and even the predecessor before that. It's nothing whatever to do with him. And yet it raises the whole issue of Ukraine's relations with the US, any financial and other assistance it may be getting from them. And it casts, it, it brings in this aura of a sort of double dealing and corruption um, into an administration, Zelensky's administration, um, which was elected um, on, on, on a platform of everything against that, mm. everything that... Pre- so I, I, I think potentially it's sort of quite, quite tragic for Zelensky. Um, but the, the the other thing to say about it is that um, when you saw the the version of the crucial phone call where it appears that Trump seemed to um, hold the the um, military aid, saying we'll release suspended military aid if you launch an investigation into um, Joe Biden's son's business activities in Ukraine. I mean, it did seem to me that at least in all the versions of that call we've seen, basically Zelensky hadn't a clue. Um, what was what, that? The, this whole idea that there, there was this sort of mafia-style boss in Washington saying, "Right, you know, you've got to do this, and we'll we'll, we'll do that." Um, it was so much between the lines. Um, as Trump called it the perfect conversation. Um, that. Zelensky would probably have not have not been aware of any of those implications, whatever. And I think by the time the phone call actually happened, um, the military aid was on the in the process of being released anyway. Um, so I'm not. I, I don't think the phone call itself. Um, is damaging to Zelensky. But I think potentially, if this issue rumbles along in Washington and if there's more implications for Ukraine, I, I, I just think it creates an atmosphere that Zelensky does not need. Mm. How far is it getting to Donald Trump? I mean, Nancy Pelosi says that he's having a meltdown. She confronted him over his uh, foreign policy decision-making. Uh, and uh, that that's, of course, about his uh, withdrawing troops from, from Syria. Uh, and... Uh, 
she says that, yeah, he's melting down. Um, I think if you want to test his emotional temperature, you just have to look at the rallies, don't you, really? I mean, it's interesting that every time he gets in trouble in Washington that he is attacked uh, by the media or the, the, the opposition. Uh, the first thing Donald Trump will do is rush off and have a rally uh, and bathe in the adoring light of his fans, won't he? And I think the fact that he rushed off, especially after the, the Syria, the tro- troop withdrawal, um, uh, decision that he made. Uh, he rushed off to have a rally saying how absolute, absolutely strategically brilliant it was, whatever. So um, I think he's certainly feeling the pressure now. Um, of course, the, the question is, uh, what effect does this have on his core vote? I mean, his approval rating is about 39%. Mm. So there are an awful lot of people who have a vote, who voted for Trump last time, who may well vote next year, for whom this Ukraine, Syria... They couldn't put their finger on it on a map, could they? And they just don't care. I think the Syria issue is so interesting because yet again, it basically warns those of us watching um, that what's going on in Washington and what's going on in the rest of the United States can be two completely different things. And when you looked at Washington, there was this enormous response, both sides of the aisle, Congressional condemnation saying this is an outrageous decision to withdraw American troops from from Syria just like that. Um, we're selling our allies down the river. None of our allies will trust us ever again. You go out to um, Donald Trump's rally in I think, Minnesota, Minnesota and... They look at this as saying Donald Trump is honouring his campaign promises at the last election to bring our boys home and to stop Americans dying abroad in other people's wars. And, you know, to my mind, that is a very forceful argument. Mm. Um, but obviously it's not the one that plays in Washington. No. no, But he did make the point that this is happening 7,000 miles away. He was very much on message yeah. there, as you say, Mary. I think that's, uh, you know, that's key to his success here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, but I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. Right. I mean, while, whilst it's of huge interest to, to Washington watchers and, 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 and people like that, his, his core vote are just thinking he's saving American lives. Absolutely. Mm. And even his point about the question about the release of the IS terrorists and it was put to him, you know, this is really serious. The, these really uh, scary people being released, uh, murderers, whatever, being released by from the Kurdish prisons or whatever. His comment was, well, they'll, they'll probably just go to Europe. <laughs> Which I have to say, as a European, I find quite scary. But on the other hand, if I was in Nebraska, I would think, yeah, great, no problem, uh, sorted. Just, just before we leave this, I mean, his, his uh, tweets have become, uh, I mean, literally insane. Yeah, I have to say, as I say, I think if you want to test his emotional temperature, it's the rallies. It's also the tweeting, isn't it? That, uh, but then it's interesting again. Yeah, this is the point. This is the people who follow him, who go direct to his tweets, who don't go through the Washington Post and the New York Times. So it is that the way he's cho- totally changed the political landscape and the in, ter- in communication terms, certainly. And I think it's so interesting watching, you know, Tweeting has been hugely effective for Trump because it's given him a direct line to the population at large. And I think we've seen other leaders following this, following his playbook, um, including Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has been handling most of his communications um, without the intermediaries, which, of course, annoys the press corps based based in London colossally. But in terms of getting his message out, it's been hugely effective. Yeah. Well, 
on on Johnson, I mean, the parallels between the two, Simon. I mean, uh, obviously, the the comparison has been made several times that that they are almost one and the same. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, you'll remember that Donald Trump, in in just before he's elected, one of his key lines was uh, was my my victory will be Brexit plus plus plus, won't it? And so, um, yeah, I think certainly uh, Boris Johnson. As I said earlier, it has to tap into an element of the populism thing to scoop up those Brexit votes, that disenchanted electorate that hasn't been touched. But on the other hand, it's it's really dangerous for him because there will be a lot of core votes. I'm thinking especially in London, um, in the sort of middle class shire constituencies that really don't like this at all. And so he uh, he has got to play this very carefully, I think. Personally, I don't think he is naturally a populist, funny enough. I think he'd rather have a glass of cold white wine in the Westminster drinks party than be out where the populists are in the pub somewhere. But I think, you know, he's obviously, as a politician, he knows that he's got to play the political scene for the way it is. And so it's interesting. Trump obviously completely embracing embracing the populism thing, along with Salvini and some of the extremists, the populists we've seen in Europe, whereas um, Boris Johnson just dips in and out of it, doesn't it? I think when it when it works... When it can deliver essential votes, he'll do it. And then, but I don't think he's comfortable there. Yeah. Uh, well, let's have a look at the papers and uh, turn first to Jonathan Friedlander, who is talking about uh, Brexit, of course. Uh, Mary. <laughs> yes. I mean, my apologies, really, for um, returning to Brexit. Um, but uh, Jonathan Friedlander in the uh, Guardian today um, has written an article which is headlined: um, "For years we've held our breath. Today, remain a dreams may die." Um, and he is writing, obviously, from the perspective of a Remain voter um, and saying that um, after the parliamentary vote today, this may absolutely be the end of the road for Remainers. Um, for the last three years, um, they, we um, have held out the hopes maybe of a second referendum that would reverse the first, um, maybe that everything would drag on so long and be so much diluted that um, the UK would end up staying in the, in the European Union. Um, Jonathan's written this sort of um, really elegiac piece um, saying that um, this really could be the end of the road. And do you believe that? I sort of do, actually. Um, and I think that it's also, um, to an extent, a recognition of the inevitable that um, Remainers generally have, uh, have, to a large extent, remained quite blind to, that um, the referendum was won by the other side. And although, you know, those of us who go out and say, well, you know, it was completely ridiculous to hold a referendum without a threshold, without a sort of constitutional majority of two-thirds, say, and necessary on for making a decision, all that, yeah. um, nonetheless, um, a referendum was held and the other side won. And so um, if the vote goes as uh, it may well do today, then, um, you know, I do think that's the end of the road. And basically, we've, you know, we've got to make the best of it. I just I wonder what the world has come to when on a current affairs programme, I find that all I can do is either laugh or sigh. <laughs> <laughs> or have a stiff drink. And even that is going to become more difficult. Uh, tell us about Scotch whisky tariffs. Yes, in, in case you're just reaching for a, a Scotch, Georgina, it's going to cost you a little bit more. Um, uh, and uh, probably uh, this is due to tariffs being slapped um, on the Scotch whisky industry. Um, 
by the uh, by the US um, and it's been approved by the World Trade Organization. Um, essentially, this is uh, because of illegal subsidies that uh, the EU made to Airbus. And so obviously, American plane, US plane makers are very unhappy about this. The World Trade Organization, as I say, has sided with the US and made the, uh, in the decision. And uh, there are predictions that it could reduce uh, Scotch whiskey sales by up to 20% a year uh, as prices rise. Um, what's the the FT also points out, on the other hand, that uh, the larger groups, uh, spirits groups such as Diageo and Perno Ricard, uh, the paper says, will be shielded from some of the impact by their large blended whiskey operations. And to me, this is just really sad. I've written about uh, Scotch whiskey before. I've had the amazing, <laughs> amazing pleasure of tasting it and visiting the distilleries and stuff. People with such passion. This is a wonderful industry, um, something that Scotland can be proud of, Britain can be proud of. And it just seems so unfair because of the machinations of, um, you know, the superpowers or whatever, that they're caught uh, between the EU and the US on on Airbus and aeroplanes, something that they have really, you know, no connection with at all. And I think the bigger picture as well is I think what this shows as, you know, the, the trade tariffs, the trade war between China and the US really begins to bite, just shows how actually ordinary people, small businesses, those of us who like a tipple even at quarter past nine in the morning, uh, are going to really <laughs> suffer as a result. It's a, it's a sad story, but I mean, I hope there'll be a, a positive outcome at some point. You're suggesting we're drinking. We're not actually <laughs> drinking, I should point out. I mean, we we, we like may it. like to be, but we're not actually doing it. Uh, let's talk about the Royals, because that's another story that you spotted. Yeah, so I was saying to Mary before we came on, sorry to be a bit tabloid about this, but I'm going to put this approach from the sort of media point of view. The, um, the, the the Times has a story um, uh, comparing, as quite a few of the papers do, comparing uh, the, the the Cambridge's interaction with the media compared with compared with the Sussexes. Obviously, Harry and Meghan have taken part in this TV interview, bearing their soul about the experience that they've had uh, at the hands of the media. Harry very much talking about, um, you know, how every shutter. Um, uh, of a camera clicking uh, upsets him and it's his his mother's uh, Princess Diana's experience with the media, media is a wound that festers and it just strikes me obviously there's a tabloid story here about Harry and Meghan sabotaging William and Kate's visit to Pakistan I, I don't know but to me what really comes across is if you compare the two of them William Kate professional aloof charming William came back on the plane I think after this bumpy ride they had you guys alright okay great thank you nice to see you and then withdrew again and I just think if if you want to see a sort of comparison between this, the two royal courts or whatever you can see how William and Kate do it in a much more professional way I think they're doing a much better job I think Harry and Meghan are suffering because they don't seem to quite appreciate that fine line between being young groovy royals on the one hand and being Hollywood celebs on the other. You know, they're firmly in the, the former camp. Yeah, I mean, there's quite a lot of oversharing and and, and you know, talking about very personal things. Yeah, which we're not used to the royals doing. That's not their job, really, is yeah. it? Quite American, as we Yes, <laughs> quite American. Shocking. <laughs> Um, I've left the, the the final story for last because it's about fireworks and I think we are probably expecting those today and <laughs> yes, don't have to wait until yeah. the 31st of October. 31st of October, obviously Brexit Day. Uh, it is also uh, Halloween, which is when the fireworks start. 5th of November is when they explode onto our skylines properly. Uh, but not so much this year, Mary. Well, yes, um, the Times has this rather interesting article saying, Bango the fireworks as public turn against display. 
plays. Um, now, this is quite interesting because a couple of days ago, Sainsbury's, one of the biggest um, supermarket chains in the UK, said that it was no longer going to sell fireworks. Um, and, I mean, it may come as a big surprise to um, to listeners abroad um, to learn that actually you can buy fireworks over the counter um, in the UK, um, which in a lot of countries you can't. Um, and also that, um, as you just said, Georgina, um, the main day for fireworks in the UK for a long time um, has been Guy Fawkes Night on the 5th of November. But increasingly, it's been taken over by New Year festivities. The UK never used to have fireworks in New Year, um, but we've had them at least since the um, since the millennium. And, um, of course, for the Americans, it's 4th of July when they have fireworks. So um, there have been, as it were, a switch from domestic fireworks parties, which you know I used to go to as a child, um, in other people's gardens, mm. um, which is extraordinary. From the safety perspective, it's just sort of amazing. Um, but then there was this move, for safety reasons, to formal civic displays often funded and organised by local councils. Big one for a very long time has been in Battersea Park in London. Um, but even now, um, it seems that people have, uh, people are actually turning away from this for completely other reasons, for ecological reasons, um, for the fact that you know, more people now have, have pets um, living in cities and find that they're hugely um, disturbed and upset by the noise of fireworks. Um, and that, added to the safety issue, is, um, is causing people apparently to become um, less enthusiastic about mm. fireworks displays. You know, I, I grew up in the middle of a, a civil war in, in Zimbabwe, mm. or a war for independence, and so, so the fireworks were completely bla- banned. And I, I was a, you know, a mid-teen before I saw fireworks after independence. Suddenly there was... Because bangs <laughs> in the sky for you. Exactly. Were meant we different. were being mortared. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, are we going to get fireworks today, Simon? Is this a damp squib? Let us know. What do you think? I think I think we'll certainly have fireworks. Absolutely, I think it's going to be uh, um, the kind of fireworks we probably won't see so much on Guy Fawkes. We'll certainly see in the House of Commons. That's all for today. Thank you so much to both Simon and Mary. Our supervising producer was Ben Rylan. Our researcher was Sam Johannes. Our studio manager was Nora Hull. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin. Once again, thanks to Mary Jadowski and Simon Brook. 